Good morning, Grace. Well, this morning is the the final sermon in a a short series that we started uh, with Passion Week uh, about six weeks ago. Um, uh, It's changed names a couple times. During Passion Week, the title was Glorified, and we were looking at how when Jesus entered that final week of, uh, of his life before the cross uh, and his resurrection, um, how God was glorified in his suffering uh, and his faithfulness to lay his life down at the cross for our sin and and how he was glorified when God raised him up again on the third day. Um, But this morning, uh, then the the title changed to Reveal. The last four Sundays, uh, we've been looking at the last two chapters of the Gospel of John at these different appearances of Jesus when he revealed himself again and again to his disciples and many, many others uh, uh, after his resurrection. And this morning, our title has changed one last time to Ascended. We're thinking about Jesus' ascension. I want to start with these opening words from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the second volume of a two-volume series. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, and then the second volume is the book of Acts, and the book of Acts begins and explains kind of what what both books, books were about. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. So the ascension really sort of is the, the, the dividing line between Luke's Gospel and then the book of Acts. He says, uh, everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what Jesus was doing in these appearances was one, proving he was really alive. This was no joke. Um, Touch my, you know, see the wounds, touch my hands, let's eat breakfast together sort of thing. But he was also teaching them. And now in light of them comprehending uh, a risen Lord, a risen Savior, now what does this mean for God's plans, his kingdom plans? And so this morning, we're going to consider this day when Jesus was taken up, Jesus' ascension. And I've realized as I've been preparing to preach this morning on this topic, Jesus' ascension, I think, uh, gets the middle child treatment from us of, uh, of all the aspects of his, his work and his first coming. You know what I mean by middle child treatment? No offense any middle children out there. We love you. But, you know, Jan Brady famously said on an episode of The Brady Bunch, that being the middle child sometimes feels invisible because it's always about who? Oh, you're with me. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. She gets all the attention, right? Now, so for us, understandably, Jesus' birth and his crucifixion and his resurrection get a lot of our attention and they deserve our attention, right? We should give those things our attention. But I think in some ways, the, Jesus' ascension sort of gets eclipsed by it and we neglect it. And I think it's to our detriment. I mean, even the fact that we, as kind of a typical American Christian church, every year we celebrate Advent, we take four weeks, and we recognize Good Friday, the, the, the day marking the day Jesus hung on the cross and died, and we celebrate Resurrection Day Sunday, but we don't um, observe, we haven't observed Ascension Day at Grace is, is a little bit telling. Historically, the church has actually celebrated Ascension Day on this coming Thursday, coming up 40 days from the day that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, and, and they mark that day and remember the day that Jesus ascended. So we're just backing it up a few days and celebrating Ascension Day this morning. Michael Horton 
once put it like this, we can treat the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection rather than as a new event in its own right. Sort of just tack it on as a footnote to the resurrection without realizing, no, it's incredibly significant and distinct in its own right. The ascension isn't just a footnote to the resurrection. It's the last past tense thing that Jesus did on earth. Look at this. So when we think like the Apostles' Creed that reminds us of, of all that Jesus did in his first coming and what he is doing now and what he will do in the future, and we think of Jesus' redeeming work, starts when God becomes a man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and he died and was buried and he rose again on the third day. And he ascended into heaven. That's the last past tense thing in the Apostles' Creed. Then, presently, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And future, he will come again one day, just as he left, to judge the living and the dead. But I want us to see this morning that his ascension is the linchpin between all of his redeeming work that he did on earth, being born as a real human and living a sinless life and dying a ransoming death and triumphantly rising from the grave, all of that, the ascension connects it to now where Jesus is presently, what he's doing now, and what he promises to do one day into eternity. The ascension is the connection point. It's very, very important. So let's first just look at how it happened and what the event of the ascension was. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel and at the beginning of the book of Acts. So let's look at both of them. Luke 24, Jesus led them out, the disciples, out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, uh, he parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Before we get to the Acts description here, just note something unusual. If you remember back to the upper room before Jesus went to the cross, that last Passover meal with his disciples, do you remember how they reacted when he first really broke the news that he was going to be departing and going to the Father? Jesus says, because I've told you these things, sorrow has filled your hearts. It was obvious to Jesus that the thought of Jesus departing from them physically caused them great sorrow. So isn't it interesting here that when the event actually happens, they don't go away with great sorrow, but great joy, and they're worshiping him. And every day in the temple blessing God, there seems to be this hopeful, excited expectancy that, that the disciples have now. And I think it's because they've come to realize that this, this risen Jesus and the plans that God now has as he departs are exciting. And so they were able to see him go and be thrilled at what was to come next. Look at Acts 1, the way that Luke describes it here. He says, as they were looking on, so this was visible, they saw this with their own eyes, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he'll come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here's the thing. What we believe when we say we believe that he ascended into heaven is this. Jesus in his human body went to heaven, was taken into heaven. 
He didn't travel through space. We don't need, sometimes the ascension can seem a little bit weird to us. Like he just went up. Did he just keep going up? It was like Captain Marvel. He could just impervious to, you know, the, the, the no atmosphere. He just kept flying in, in like light years away to some heavenly planet or something where he's sitting. I don't think we need to get weird and cosmic about it. I think the point was God physically lifted him up off the earth and he really went up into the sky, into the clouds. And, and when they finally couldn't see him anymore, God took him into heaven. Jesus physically, bodily now is in heaven in the presence of God in that heavenly realm where God exists, where Isaiah 6 had that vision and he saw God seated on the throne and these cherubim angels were shouting, holy, 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 that place where God dwells that one day if you are in Christ and you die, you will be taken to be with him there. That's the place we're talking about. He went there physically the same Jesus of Nazareth who, who walked around and healed the sick and cast out demons uh, and walked out of the empty tomb, left the earth visibly and bodily. Now, God didn't have to do it this way, did he? I mean, if ultimately him rising up from the earth, but then God takes him to heaven, which is not, which is, 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 that, is a completely different realm, the spiritual realm. God could have just at the last appearance with his disciples, he could have said, all right, guys, this is it. I just want you to know, but from now on, you're not going to see me anymore. Poof. I mean, he could have just, God could have just taken him that way. He could have. But God shows this event on this hill to, for them to see their Lord and Savior rise from the earth into heaven for a reason. God wants us to understand that Jesus' incarnation never stops. Maybe that's the first time you'd, that it occurred to you. Maybe in your mind, you, you might have thought, you know, I, think, I thought Jesus was, was a man for about 33 years. He came, he did what he had to do, but now certainly he doesn't still have this kind of, you know, dirty human body, this sort of in, in his holiness, right? But no, he forever continues to be the God-man. He took his human nature into heaven and he's never going to take it off. We're not to imagine that when he kind of got behind the cloud and finally out of sight and God took him into heaven, that he sort of stripped off his human nature like I used to take my McDonald's uniform off as a senior in high school after an eight-hour shift. I think it was nasty. It was that like double-knit polyester material. It was forest green and it just absorbed all the smells of grease from the fryer. And I get home and I just couldn't wait to take that thing off and take a shower and put real clothes on. And maybe we might think that Jesus felt that way of, of becoming a man. He humbled himself and he became a man. And so, yes, he, he was surrounded and, and walked on this broken earth and it grieved him. And we in our humanity is broken and he intends to fix us when we are raised again. But let's not think that our humanity is something that, that God doesn't want to have anything to do with. Jesus actually is affirming God's ideal of, for our humanity in remaining God in flesh. And here's the thing, if God, Jesus was only God for 33 years plus 40 days, and then whew, he just removed that, we don't have the gospel. None of th those things on, on, on the front side, the past tense things on the other side of the ascension would benefit us in any way if Jesus stopped being a man. It's essential. We didn't need God to just become a man temporarily. We need him to be a man permanently. We needed him not just to come down to earth as a man, but now to return to heaven as a man. That's what he's done in the ascension. It's so important. I read a great book the last few, probably six weeks, Eric shared it with me. It's sadly out of print. It's called Jesus Ascended. 
And the author, Garrett Dawson, right in the opening chapter, says it as clearly uh, as he can say it, how foundational it is that we get that we believe Jesus' ascension and, and the gospel hinges on it. He says this, enormous theological problems are raised by disembodying Christ's ascension. Our salvation depends on his continuing union with us. If the Son of God came to us where we are, but then he went away and he did not take us with him, we would still be lost. Any view of the ascension as Jesus slipping off his humanity is a sentence of condemnation. We cannot be united with him in the Holy Spirit if he is no longer flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. If the one who sits at the right hand of God is not still fully human as well as fully God, then we will never enter within the veil. That'll make a little bit more sense later if that phrase is unfamiliar to you. If he dropped the hypostatic union with humanity, which is just a fancy way of saying what he did when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, if he dropped that, then he dropped us. And we're left forsaken on this side of the great divide, unable to fulfill our purpose, find forgiveness and restored communion with God, and unable to enact our mission. This is essential for us to like we sang in that beautiful hymn text that we sang to the, the tune of Ode to Joy, you have raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. That's what the ascension was. So the question then this morning is this, what is God saying to us through the ascension? What does God want us to understand that the ascension makes clear for us? And there's more than three things, but I want to highlight three this morning because they really get at what we sang in another song. He lives, my prophet, priest, and king. He lives, my prophet, priest, and king. Three things God is saying to us through Jesus' ascension. Number one is this. We've got a man on the throne. We have a man, on, not just a king on the throne. The ascension tells us we have a man on the throne. In the ascension, one of the things that it depicts is the suffering servant, now risen, ascending to take his seat on the throne of heaven. He becomes the king of kings, seated at God's right hand, ruling and reigning. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, in that sermon that he preached to the crowds, made it very clear. He said, everyone who would listen, God has now made Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came from that village that no one thinks anything good comes from, that Jesus who was crucified, buried, and resurrection, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He has made him, that man, king. So one thing that the upward ascension of Jesus in that event is visualizing for us, helping us get, is that Jesus was exalted now to the place that he deserves at God's right hand, ruling over everything. I want us to take a little tour through Ephesians here with a view toward the ascension and see what Paul says about the ascension, Ephesians chapter one. It first comes up as he tells the Ephesians one of the things that he prays for them. And no doubt if he was still alive and he would be praying this for our church as well. He prayed that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Can it get any higher than that? Did he leave anyone out? 
Every powerful ruler, every powerful government in this age and also the one to come until Jesus returns again, all beneath the throne that Jesus now sits upon. And it gets even greater than this. And God put all things under his feet and then gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's us. We become the body of Christ, our king on the throne. He becomes the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is mind-blowing. He's not just a man on the throne. He's our man on the throne, Paul is saying. If you're a Christian and you're part of his church, he is seated in the highest place ever and he's ruling and reigning there as a gift to us. Like that Tim Keller quote said there, he's the executive director director of all history now and he has the authority to make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It even gets greater than that. Ephesians chapter two, verse six, Paul says this, for every believer, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his mercy made you alive together with Christ and saved you by his grace. Listen to what else he did. It says he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's a double image. Not only is he on the throne of heaven ruling and reigning on our behalf for our good, but it's so certain that we in him are united with him in his enthronement and his ascension that we can even say, it's like we are already seated on the throne with him. His triumph is our triumph now. We don't see everything in subjection to Christ now, but we see the one who sits on that throne and God has promised he's our king, he's our man. And great benefits come to us when we remember this, that that Jesus is our man on the throne. Two really important ones, one right from Paul's prayer here, is we get confidence. When, When Paul said, I pray that you would know that Jesus of Nazareth died and rose again for you and is now sitting on the throne of heaven. He doesn't just mean, I, I, want, I pray that you would know that in a, huh, that's really interesting and cool sort of way. He doesn't just mean, I hope you really get the concept. He does, but it's much more than that. He's talking about knowledge in the form of confidence, isn't he? Your confidence is a form of knowledge, isn't it? Confidence is an assurance and a certainty of a thing that's true, that affects the way I think and see and and, and live, right? He's praying that we would know this immeasurable greatness of his power that is ours because our man is on the throne. This knowledge allows us to sing the verse of this hymn and not just be blown smoke. We can sing to ourselves, be still my soul. Your God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. So your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. So be still my soul. The waves and the winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. It's a beautiful, even implicit reminder in that verse of where Jesus is now. He does not dwell below right now. One day he's coming again and he's gonna make, create a new heavens and new earth and he will dwell below again with us forever. But right now he doesn't. But don't forget that he sits on the throne and the waves and winds still know his voice. 
The same Jesus who said, hush to a storm on a boat sits on the throne of heaven for us. Does that give you a confidence? We need this confidence. I can't tell you, uh, serving on our elder team over the years, I, I don't think a week goes by that we don't get a call or an email. Something has happened between you know, the last Sunday and this Sunday in the lives of, of folks here at Grace. Devastating, unforeseen, faith-shaking. This last week was no different. This morning as we met upstairs at 6.30 to pray as elders, we didn't even get to prayer for 15 minutes as we were just saying, you know, this is going on too, and this is going on too. The sort of stuff that just crushes our spirits and causes us to be fearful and make us feel like we're out of control in this world. We don't have the control we think we do. We're desperately in need of help. We need this confidence. There's a king on the throne who has all power, and he's been given to us. Be encouraged this morning. Whatever's rattling you this morning, whatever is shaking your confidence, it doesn't have to be shaken. Not only is, immeasur- is his immeasurable power being worked out for us on our behalf and, and he's at work in our lives, but it's also available through us as he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. One more place in Ephesians where Paul brings up the ascension says this, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What's Paul doing there? He lifted that one line out of Psalm 68 because he realizes in Jesus' ascension, Jesus has really done a much greater thing than what Psalm 68 was celebrating. Psalm 68 was a psalm, a song that was celebrating God's enthronement, sort of taking his place on the throne in Jerusalem in the day when the temple was finally built after God had rescued them from Egypt and delivered them from slavery and brought them through the wilderness and conquered all their enemies and established them in the land and they finally built a temple so that the tabernacle no longer was the center of their worship and the Ark of the Covenant where God had displayed his glory in their pre- glorious presence was now transported up the mount and brought into the temple and set in the place behind the curtain that God had designed and in the psalm it builds to this crescendo and it says, the Lord is among them. Sinai is in the sanctuary. It's like saying the king is in the house in the psalm. And Paul, as he reflects back on that psalm and he's thinking of Jesus' ascension, he's saying, that's it. When our Lord Jesus ascended on high, not only is he leading a host of captives who he ransomed with his blood, but he gave gifts to men. What does he do after triumphing over our enemies at the cross and rising from the grave and sitting on his throne? He shares the spoils of his victory with his people. And he gives gifts to men. He gives us himself, the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, he gifts his people, every last one. If you are in Christ, your, his Spirit dwells in you and he's gifted you uniquely. Notice Paul said, no one's left out. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We sing, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. That's in a hymn that talks about, you know, living life in a world with a pretty nasty foe. So what are we to do with this gift? Well, Paul goes on, he says, he gave the gift, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip all of the saints for the work of ministry 
to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He wants us to be eager to use the gifts. Think about that hillside as Jesus departed and was finally gone and as the disciples went away worshiping, filled with great joy, eagerly awaiting, daily at the temple, praying expectantly. They were just itching to get started. They couldn't wait for what the gifts that Jesus was about to send to start using them. In the book of Acts, we see this explosion of, of, of gospel ministry and proclamation of Christ and this good news to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria moving out towards the end of the earth. So my question for us is, are we that eager? Are we just itching to use the, the gifts that God's given us and to be moved forward in the confidence of the spirit who goes before us and is at work in, in our efforts of ministry and brings fruit, even though in and of ourselves we could never bring fruit? Or do you mainly just think about that for an hour and a half when you're here on this campus on a Sunday and the rest of the week is just, well, that's just just my time. Or are you eager to, to these gifts that God's given you to employ them for the sake of building up the kingdom of God? We have a man on the throne. He's our man. That's the first reason that we need to remember the ascension. Second thing God's saying to us is this. We've got an advocate in heaven. We have an advocate. We have one who who stands for us, intercedes for us. Not only is the ascension a picture of the, the king ascending to his throne, it's also a picture of Jesus, our great high priest, entering into heaven there to present himself and the blood he shed and the wounds in his hands as evidence that he has laid his life down as a perfect, permanent ransom for the sins of the world. Let me take you on a quick ascension tour of the book of Hebrews. Right out of the gate in Hebrews 1, we're talking about the ascension. It says that Jesus, after making purification for sins, after dying for your sin at the cross, he just skips right over the resurrection, assumes it. He says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He can't wait to get from what Jesus did at the cross to now where he is. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means, Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest not just a king in heaven, but a high priest in heaven, one who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And his visible passing through into the heavens in the ascension, again, is a picture of what he truly has passed through, from what place he's passed into what place, through the heavens into heaven. So that Hebrews 6 can say this. Now we have, this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, something to be confident in. We have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. I want to talk about that inner place behind the curtain for a minute. He's talking about the temple that, that was in Jerusalem where the, where the people of Israel used to worship and no longer n- was necessary once Jesus came and died and rose again. But in that temple, they built it according to God's design. And in his design, there was that one special place I was talking about a little bit ago where they brought the Ark of the Covenant in and they set it behind this heavy veil and curtain. And God chose to display his unique glory and his powerful presence somehow 
now behind that curtain, in that space, in a way that he didn't display it anywhere else. And the curtain was telling us something. Even the way it was designed, it was covered with these golden cherubim all over it, these angels who, who stand or fly or, or exist in the very presence of God and who announce holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty and make the thresholds shake. If you were to have had the chance to approach that curtain, that curtain was telling you, you don't just saunter in here. You don't just slip back behind here for a little quiet time with the Lord to have a moment. It was a barrier. It was telling us that our sin separates us from a holy and perfect and glorious God. Something needs to be done if we are gonna have close intimate fellowship with that God. The curtain said, you can draw near, but not that near. And for 364 days of the year for Israel, that room was unoccupied. No one went in. It was just the presence of the Lord in there. But one day every year, one man, one high priest was chosen and selected, not just to march in there, but to first offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice on behalf of his own personal guilt. Because he, he was a sinner as a high priest. He was human. And he'd go in behind the curtain with smoke, even hiding his eyes, kind of obscuring his eyes with, with smoke and incense and would offer this offering on behalf of himself. And then he'd come back out and he'd bring in blood, offering on behalf of all the people and would offer it there. And then he wouldn't just linger, but he'd get out. Even the priest, high priest couldn't stay in there long. He came in, made atonement for sin, and then exited. Hebrews 9 then says of this of Jesus. Well, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That was just a copy. That stunning, breathtaking room with the giant curtain and the blood sacrifices and all that, and the very real presence of God being displayed behind that curtain, he says, that was just a copy. Raise your hand if you've ever been to Legoland. All right. Yeah, it's probably not worth the money for a day, is it, parents? No, I'm just kidding. Kids love it. But I went one time, and, uh, and I've seen the Lego Taj Mahal there. It's impressive. I won't lie. I've seen the Lego Great Wall of China there. I've seen the Lego Big Ben. And it was amazing. I wouldn't have wanted to have to build those things. I mean, it was truly a, a feat, uh, you know, a, a artistic, you know, I've also been to India and sat on the steps of the Taj Mahal as the sun went down with Betsy and Eric and Donna years ago. And I've walked on the Great Wall of China with my kids. The Lego version doesn't compare, right? Not even in the same universe, right? And at the risk of sounding sacrilegious, Hebrews is saying that, that the, the Holy of Holies, that was like the Lego presence of God or the Lego heaven, it was the real presence of God there. Don't miss my point. But Christ has now entered into the actual presence of God that that was just a picture and a glimpse of. And he's not just gotten there, whew, I'm back home. But he's there now to appear in the presence of God on your behalf. You, on your behalf, with all your sin and all your guilt and all your failure, he's there right now appearing before God on your behalf this morning. And he's interceding. That's what it means that he's appearing in the presence of God. Uh, let me go back here. 
He holds his priesthood permanently. He continues forever. So consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for them. By intercession, that means he is interceding. um, He is 365 days of the year, 24-7, forever, representing us before God, presenting his perfect and finished sacrifice in our place before God so that we are no longer condemned, but we are welcomed to God to draw near. That's what it means that he's our advocate, that you, in your sin, God never sees you if you have received Christ as your advocate, which we'll get to in a second. But if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, God never sees you in your sin without simultaneously seeing the perfect, glorious righteousness of Jesus and his blood shed for you, done. Never. No matter how condemned you feel this morning sitting in your chair. We sang it this morning when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within. Maybe that's you this morning, right now. That's why you need to remember that Jesus ascended because you are not condemned. Romans 8.34 says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, more than that? Who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. There's something more than that about the cross. That is where he is now, interceding for us. Paul wants you to know when you feel condemned in your sin or when you feel helpless, to fix your sin and to walk away from your sin and hopeless to grow in righteousness and walk in in new life and you just feel worn out. I can't do this. He doesn't just want you to look back to the cross and the empty tomb. He wants you to look up to where Jesus is seated now as a king and a great high priest who is appearing before God on your behalf. You are forgiven this morning and you are empowered by him through the gifts he's given to continue to walk in a new life. You couldn't be any more pleasing to God this morning than you are because of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean he's not done with you <laughs> and he doesn't have lots to fix in us and he, a lot of work to continue to make, bring our, our, our bodies and our attitudes and our actions and our words into conformity and alignment with who he sees us as now in Christ. But we need to rest easy. When Satan, Satan tempts you to despair and tells you the guilt within, upward you can look not just backward, and see him there who made an end to all your sin. I love, by the way, that little word is. He is at the right hand of God. He is indeed interceding for us. Look at John, 1 John uh, 2, 1. He wants us to look upward too. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means the the, the sacrifice that removes and absorbs the wrath of God that we were due and now fully satisfies it. Not only was Jesus the propitiation for our sins, he is right now the propitiation for our sins and he'll never stop being that as God and man. Do you want that to be true of you? Do you recognize guilt within You know yourself better than anyone else around you, even the the closest people in your life. You know the thoughts you have. You know the attitudes you have. You know the things that you've done that even sort of disgust you, (laughs) that that even fall short of your standards. And you ever have the thought, well, in the big picture, if there's a God, what is he gonna do with me in light of all my sin? Well, I've been telling you, and if you've been coming to grace for any length of time, you hear it every week, that God loves you, and he gave his son to 
endure the consequence for your sins so that you don't have to, that you can receive as a free gift from him um, forgiveness and a new life. And he can be, you can call him your king and your great high priest, your advocate. What's, what's holding you back from doing that? Do you want to do that this morning? I, I want to pause just for a minute and just for us to pray. I, I want to pray. If, if you this morning, that's it. You're right here saying, I, I, want, I want Christ as my king. I want Christ as my savior and my advocate above. I want that hope. All you need to do is, is express to God this, this, these simple things. Say, God, I, I, I get it now. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I, I don't deserve, I, I couldn't stand in your holy presence without fear. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place at the cross, for having my sin upon your shoulders, for dying the death that, so that I don't have to, to die in. And Lord, thank you for raising from the grave and offering me this as a free gift. God, I want to turn from my sin this morning by your help, and I want to ask you to forgive me and help me walk in a new life. And you ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that this morning, I would love for you to come up and talk to me about that right after this service. I'll be right up at the front. So these are two pretty amazing things that we're able to, to say that God is saying to us through the ascension. We have a man on the throne. We have a king uh, on the throne that is for us and we reign with. Secondly, we have an advocate. And third thing it's saying this morning is we have a mission on earth. In the ascension, Jesus enlists us and he empowers us to be his witnesses. So if we think about he lives my priest, he lives my king, he also lives now in heaven my prophet. In the ascension, Jesus is passing the baton now uh, of his prophetic ministry in the world. He is still speaking into all the world, words, gospel words of calling from life to death, but now he's not doing it physically present on earth preaching. He is now doing it through his church. Think about it. When, God, when Jesus was in his ministry, do you remember how urgent he was? If you read any of the gospel accounts, he goes from village to village proclaiming this news. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe. And then he goes to the next village and the next village. And one, one time the disciples are looking for him and they can't find him and he'd been up all night praying. And the first thing he says is, we gotta go to more villages. And he's on such a fast pace going to each village, each village. His mother and his brothers come at one point and say, Jesus, you're crazy. You gotta slow yourself down. You're gonna die from this. And he says, I must keep going. Do you ever wonder why, what was driving this urgency of Jesus? He could only be in one village at one time, right? While he was on earth, he can go to one village and then the next village and keep proclaiming this message. But now in the ascension, Jesus has ascended into heaven, poured out his spirit on his church, and now Jesus' voice is going into all the world by the witness of the eyewitnesses that we have now in the scriptures by the power of the spirit as we bring that message to the world. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Ooh, that's not it. Let's move forward. All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. That's thinking about where he is now. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is inviting us to be united, not just with him in his ascension and his enthronement, but in his mission when he ascends. Acts 1.8, he says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit, oh, that one must not be in there. 
Let me just read it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The only way that would be true, that those eyewitnesses' voice would be taken to the end of the earth, is if we take it there because they ran their course and they've died now. And we've been handed, entrusted their accounts and their, and their words and what they witnessed. And we take it now in the power of the Spirit to the world. It's amazing. Paul called us ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5. Being reconciled to God gives you now the ministry of reconciliation to be part of inviting people from death to life. Look at that last line. He's now entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. So therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what the ascension reminds us. Every day that Jesus is gone physically from the earth reminds us where his body is right now. We, not his physical body, that we are the body of Christ on earth. We are the, his mouthpiece on earth. He wants to make his appeal through us. On Friday, Gerald Haugen had the chance to, to preach the gospel at Food Bank. Three men received Jesus and talked and prayed with him after, and he sent us an email rejoicing over this. And one said he plans to be here this morning. One plans to be at La Gracia this morning. And one is looking for a church in La Habra, Lord willing, this Sunday. And, and if you're here, if that has to be you, I'm so glad you're here. Praise God. We want to be part of helping now you learn more about Christ and walk with him. But I share that to just say that... that uh, that right there, what happened on Friday afternoon in our food bank was the ascended Jesus continuing his prophetic ministry in the world through his people. And he wants to use you. He can use you. So question here as we close, which of these three people are you, groups are you? Number one, maybe you're in a group that you're saying, I'm not sure I want to. I don't really want to be ambassador for Jesus. I, I, I'm not really up to that. Whether it's I have fear of man, uh, I love my reputation too much. Uh, I have my own agenda and plans for my vocation and being a witness uh, is gonna mess that up and I'm just not interested. I'm happy for other Christians to be that. My gentle encouragement to you would be repent of that attitude. Jesus says pretty harsh things for someone who is more than happy to receive his full grace through Christ and has no desire that, to let anyone else know of that. That's a hard heart. Ask God to, to remove that and to replace it with a heart that's so overwhelmed with the love of Christ for you that it's compelled to, to move toward others. But maybe you're one of these two groups. Either you want to be united with Christ in his mission, but you're discouraged, you're fearful, you feel inadequate, and you've had maybe some failed feelings of failure in your past, and right now you're not seeking to proclaim Christ in any way in your life. Or maybe you are, but you're just discouraged, and you just feel like this doesn't work. I don't have time for another sermon this morning, but I have time to point you to a sermon. I, the, the sermon title alone is what grabbed my attention this last week, and so I listened to it. Isaac Adams, pastoral assistant at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C., preached this sermon, Hope for Lousy Evangelists. That's the sermon I needed to listen to, and I did. I want to recommend it to you. Go look it up. Go Google it. Capitol Hill Baptist, Hope for Lousy Evangelists. It's wonderful. He gives nine great reasons to, for us to hope uh, and, and encourages us to be united with Christ in his mission. All right, we're pretty much done. I just want to ask you a question. At the beginning, I said, I think we neglect Jesus' ascension to our detriment. Have I convinced you? Yes, we need to remember Jesus ascended. We've got a man on the throne, an advocate in heaven, and he's given us a mission on earth. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you hear this prayer right now because Jesus uh, is in your very presence and we can draw near with confidence knowing that mercy and grace will be found in our times of need no matter when they are. So Lord, this morning I pray you'd, you'd comfort us and assure us uh, with our advocate in clear view that you'd um, give us hope and courage and fearlessness in light of the things that we are facing in this world because uh, our king is in view. And Lord, I pray you would help us to walk out these doors with a renewed sense of urgency and mission because you've given great gifts to us here on earth and you want to lead more captives home through us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.